0: where did you like to play as a child? I ask this question a lot because childhood memories shape us into the people we become. Welcome to Play It Forward, a worthy podcast. I'm your host, Lucas Ritson. Thanks so much for joining me. I talk a lot about play. I'm a dad, I'm a husband, I'm an educator, and I'm a playground designer. So I want to gather some of my favorite people who are advocates of children and nature and create a space to have an honest conversation about getting more kids outside. The power of play is very often underestimated, and I think we all need a little more play in our lives. My next guest is a director of the Internet Addiction Clinic at Kidspace, where he helps hundreds of families struggling with internet, screen, and gaming addiction. He is an author of a fantastic book named The Tech Diet for Your Children and Teens. He's also a well-respected presenter and frequent consultant on all the TV channels. Um, Today, we're talking about how screen times impact well-being, what parents can do about it, and the role schools play in managing children's tech intake. Welcome into our virtual studio, the unplugged psychologist, Brad Marshall. Thanks for having me, Lucas. Um, Thanks for joining us today. It's such an important conversation to have. We're in these very unique times. Of people at home, people on screens, childhood's looking very different for children over the last few years. So I think this is a great opportunity to have this important conversation and get some um, good tips and insight into families and educators on how to manage screen time and best support the children in their world. So thank you so much.
1: Yeah, appreciate it.
0: Um, We'll start where we start with all guests with a little bit of a reflection. Um, Where did you play as a child?
1: Where did I play as a child? You mean uh, just in general? In general. What did it look like? Um, also there's a couple that spring to mind here. So my father built, my brother and I, a, um, a, an obstacle course style, like playground set in our backyard. It had like one of those sand pits and then commando nets. Um, and nice. he built it all himself. Um, so we played a lot there and in our backyard pool further than that we had some pretty cool parks when i was a kid in the area Like cool i can remember one park near us that had uh what like, you might know the sort of technical term for it but it was one of those spinning circle things and you'd like run on it and and it would go round and round in circles What making sense there yeah
0: yeah absolutely it's local
1: kids just like um, get a, a bike or a motorbike yep. or whatever and tie it to it and you know pull it and yep. you'd go flying off and um and so yeah there was one of those in the local park and uh and then another park had just this these giant towers in sydney in the 80s when bicentennial park was built yep. um there were these giant towers that looked like castles you know and as a young fella it just like was the coolest thing in the world you'd ride your bike there and then even further afield we um had a weekend a uh, very modest weekend that we shared with another family and so there was five boys within five years all sharing a room and and it was you know on a national park and by a by the beach and we used to get into some pretty serious play there so I'm talking like rope swings and um, you know we had a catamaran and that we sunk twice <laughs> and um, what else so we used to build like little traps on the beach um, I don't know if you ever used to do that as yep. a kid. Like,
0: yeah, we'd build him the in the jams. And then,
1: yeah, and, like, and the idea was that someone would walk along and like put their foot through it, which, of course, is not such a nice thing. But anyway, um, yeah, so we used to get up into a bit of trouble when we were in the bush there as well. And all, on more than one occasion tried to catch snakes, which, again, was probably not a great idea. But anyway, got a long version of that. <laughs> no, no, not
0: at all. It gives me a great insight. A previous guest posed a question to me, which I'll pose to you now, um, yeah. Lenore Scanalsi. What activities did you engage in as a child that you would no longer let your child engage with?
1: Yeah, right. Um, I mean, I think all this stuff at home, I'd be pretty cool with. Oh, yeah. If I had the ability, uh, my dad was an engineer, so he could he could build stuff. Um, yeah. and, but whereas I, I'm just not as good. So I couldn't build something like that in the backyard. So all, all that stuff, all the park stuff, I'm pretty good with, Um I think I probably would draw the line at my kids playing with snakes. Although in saying that, I'm going to, going to make it out like my parents were really negligible. It's not like they knew, right? Yeah. We were just off in the bush, yeah. doing what like 10-year-old boys do, grab yeah. the fishing net and decided that a red belly black snake was a good thing to try and catch. Um, so, you know, look, I don't think that's something that they sort of allowed yeah. per se. Yeah, it's, that's probably where I would draw the line.
0: Yeah, and you didn't mention screens because they just weren't around.
1: Um, so, I mean, to be fair, they were, uh, we would play a little bit, but we didn't have it on holidays. Yeah. Like we weren't taking an Xbox or a, no. well, there was an Xbox then, but like Nintendo 64 or Sega Mega Drive or any of those things. Um, we had a Game Boy that we used to play, yeah. you know, Tetris or or whatnot. Um, yeah. And then we did have in my teenage years consoles that would be at home, but um it was much more the case that we would kind of do that for an hour and then swim yeah. for an hour or two, and then play pizza and then hit golf balls in the backyard, which is another thing we did that was probably not <laughs> something that you're supposed to do. But anyway, yeah. Um, so yeah, they were around, but they weren't as prevalent as, as they are now.
0: Yeah. And you know, when we fast forward to children of today and their experience um, in general, not just your children, but beyond wider community and the things you're supporting families with childhood's very different are we just being old and being like just stuck in the nostalgia back in my day, or is this something that really has got out of hand?
1: I mean, I, I'm going to say, Where I, think are we? I think it's both. Um, yeah. I certainly meet parents or adults that will just get really stuck in the back in my day argument. Mm. And I think that we need to remind ourselves that that, you know, our grandparents or parents would have been saying the same thing about my my Discman or my Walkman or my, um, you know, my Game Boy, you know, that we didn't have that stuff. Um, yeah. I can distinctly remember my dad just talking about TV. Back in my day, we didn't have polar TV, you know. Yep. You to go out and go fishing or something. So I think there's an element of that generational, um, you know, impact. And we all need to be careful about going down that path as adults because typically teenagers or kids will just switch off in the same way that we did, right? When that argument was said to us, yeah. it's like, ah, oh, we're old, forget it. On the flip side, there is also an argument to be made that it is a little bit more for some kids these days um, than we probably would like. So yeah, I, I think it's a bit of both. And, and certainly if you look at some of the statistics um, and there's a great Gonski report um, that was done, I think last year, um, they're doing some some new surveys on Australian kids and their screen use. You know, you, you can take out little snippets of that. Um, so for example, 67% of um, primary school children own their own personal device now. So that's an iPad or a phone. Mm. Um, you know, there's about 33%, I think from memory, um, around 30% anyway, of, of parents surveyed say they let their kids take their screens to bed. Um, so we're getting some numbers up there for things that were not done back in my day yeah
0: yeah it's uh definitely unique challenge to to overcome um an argument i've heard is that you know within the context of play and being out in the neighborhood and being social within your neighborhood they're like it's not that it's not happening it's just happening online now and we don't see it but it is happening how much truth is there in that
1: yeah, there's probably a lot of truth in that. Yeah. Um, and again, that's not to say that I agree or disagree with that being a healthy thing. Um, I, I think you, you even see this. Uh, I was reading an article the other day, and it, again, I'm, I'm a bit conscious that it was a bit of a news you know, media article, but um, there are reports even in, in um, certain cities in lockdown right now where you get neighbours complaining about kids drawing with chalk on driveways. Mm. You know, and it's like... I mean, have we really got to the point where we're complaining about kids, um, you know, playing outside and driving, you know, drawing on driveways? So I think there's an element of parents feel pressure that if their kids are outside or out the front and not just contained in their backyard, um, that they're up to no good. Yeah. And in fact... Um, That's just drawing my memory, actually. About three or four months ago, I did a a, a live chat for a a small community in Canada. Um, What was the name of the community? I think it was called Caribou. Apologies to the team if I'm getting that wrong out there. But anyway, so we had a whole bunch of parents, um, like 100 parents that were live streaming this too. And they were telling me that during their lockdown in Canada, because it was a bit of a um, rural community, um, that the police were called on their 10 and 11 year old kids for playing outside and just pretending to make a fire. Um, And and they, you know, these parents were just beside themselves and even the police came out and kind of went. And, and and I think if I'm getting the story correct here, I'm pretty sure um, one of the kids was like the policeman's son or something. So the sheriff's son or whatever it was. So it's just, but even they were commenting, that was one of the questions here of how do we get to the point where, you know, you're getting um, neighbors, um interpreting kids as playing as being some dangerous activity like we've got delinquents running the streets mm. so i think there's an element of that um that is very tricky for parents because they feel like they're being judged as a parent if their kids are um, out and about yeah um but as, as far as your question you know is the new version just online yes Um, That can be anywhere from social media websites to gaming platforms, depending on sort of gender differences and age differences Mm. and whatnot. Um, A lot of that is done via sort of video and and chatting services, not not Zoom or Skype, as as parents would sort of have believed. So things like Discord or house party um, and for parents at home that might be going, I don't know what that is. It's a kid's version of of Zoom, basically. Um, So you'll get kids these days especially during homeschooling that are in a discord call 24 seven with their friends. Yeah. Um, You know, and they just mute themselves and come back in sometimes um, when they've got class, sometimes not, but what they'll be doing is they'll be gaming or doing social media stuff while video chatting and everything. And so what you hear from parents is I've got a child that is in their room on a headset, just swearing or yelling or getting very, you know, and that is kind of the equivalent now of the playground, right? Like. It used to be, okay, kids, calm down. You know, everyone's yelling too much or I heard you swearing or I heard you throwing a stick. That's the version now. Um, whether, we, whether we like it or not, that's unfortunately where things have
0: kind of gone. Yeah. And, and that's where they're experimenting exploring and finding out these social um, requirements and norms and what's accepted and what's not. It's just that the parent is in closer proximity now, it seems. They're in the next room opposed to um, back in the house while we're at the park.
1: Yeah, and I I think that that's where a lot of the cyber safety concerns come in from parents, which is something that I'm not, um, sort of don't profess to be an expert in the cyber safety itself. Mm -hmm. I stick with more of the overuse and the the problematic use or the addiction, as some people call it. But, But yeah, that's, you know, behind closed doors when you've got everything at your fingertips. It just, you know, one would argue that it's a lot easier to find yourself in a bit of a tricky situation if you're a child- versus if you're out and about, um, you know, sure, okay, mm. be a stupid ten year old boy with five mates and come across a snake. Um, but the chances of that happening are pretty low yeah. versus the the chances that you, you know, um find yourself in a bit of trouble online with friends or, or with anyone else.
0: Yeah. Um to rewind a little bit, this mm. Even just the wording of addiction related to screen times relatively new. how did you take those steps from studying psychology and finding yourself in a unique role and a very new role as in managing internet um, addiction?
1: Yeah, so um, so this is a story I quite often tell because it's not something that I sort of set out to do mm. so. Um, probably about 12 years ago now, I was a very green, young child psychologist. I was working in a big hospital. We had a team of people. There was a very fancy professor that was extremely senior. And of course, I was doing what any new person does, which is keep their head down and try not to talk too much. Um, and, and there was this referral that came across. So what this is back oh, I don't know, nine, maybe 2010. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was a young man who'd found himself not going to school and, and not sleeping because he was immersed in this online world of Harry Potter. And it wasn't even a game. It was a website where you could teach um, roles. So he'd become like a professor at Hogwarts or something. And, and, and because of the time difference with people overseas, he would just immersed himself in it and he'd stopped playing sports, sleeping, going to school. So of course, you know, the senior people in this team are all talking about who's going to see this young man. Um, and everyone's very quiet. And then all of a sudden, the senior professor says, Brad, you're in. And I said, what do you mean I'm in? And he goes, well, you you game, don't you? I mean, yeah. I mean, I used to. I, I kind of do a little bit now. He goes, okay, well, therefore, you, you know more than anyone at this table about it, so you're in. And that's literally how I got into this, because it was just simply the fact that I was a young bloke who happened to be a child psychologist, and we're not all that. Common mm. tends to be a female um, sort of heavily female dominated area in, in child psychology. Um, and, and yeah, so from there, it just ended up that I kept getting referrals for it. And then I opened the clinic a year or two later because it, it, it just um, kept growing. But the reason that I called it the internet addiction clinic was not because I agree with the term addiction and people get very upset about this as well. Like I've, I've had people shout me down on, on national radio about this that I'm, I'm an alarmist, that I'm calling it addiction. I'm absolutely not. Um, but you've got to remember that 10 years ago, we the debate around whether it should be called gaming addiction or yeah. internet addiction or gaming problematic use or gaming disorder, I mean, there were like 10 different terms. And the academics just spent a decade before that trying to figure out which one to call it. And I just had enough, to be honest yeah. with you. I thought, we're all sitting here debating for 10 years what we should call this. And I'm just going to be pragmatic. I'm going to call it what parents call it, which is internet addiction. Yeah. Um, So I'm not necessarily endorsing the term that it is on the same level as an addiction. I don't think it, I think the jury's out on that one um, as to whether we have enough research to prove that. But I just called it what parents were emailing me and searching for in Google um, because that's what they call it. So technical term now is internet gaming disorder. If you listen to um, a big book called the dsm or the gaming disorder if you listen to um the world health organization yeah so
0: yeah so to flash to that first ever um client of yours harry potter world what were your steps there like how did you manage that
1: uh not very well um i, like I mean there was no there was no treatment manual there was no there was nothing yeah um there was a little bit from a famous professor, um, sorry, famous doctor in in the United States called Kimberly Young, who's, who's since passed away, unfortunately, and I never got to see her speak, which is a shame. But she was sort of, um, you know, the pioneer in this. But she had focused in the early two thousands on adults, and there wasn't a whole lot um, on kids. And and in fact, this is what I'm I'm doing a PhD right now at Macquarie University with Professor Wayne Warburton. Um, on this very topic because we still struggle to understand what are the best treatment, quote-unquote, um, options for kids in this area, um, like what works. Because up until now, we've got a whole bunch of people, myself included, that, that just have been trialing different things. And I think I've got some strategies that work, and it, it's a combination of other things that we do in the field. Um, but the long and the short of it is that the treatment research in this field is is, is decades behind.
0: Yeah. where it should go yeah. yeah well also within um there's hope because if we reflect on the knowledge we had around brains and how they worked and everything a decade ago we didn't know much compared to what we do now so you know um, we could get there
1: i like your optimism <laughs> <laughs> always
0: always uh, i've got to get there
1: the other side of that unfortunately and again not to just be the the pessimistic guy but um the problem is that the amount of research that we have using functional MRI scans Mm. so that brain scan stuff in the research world um, you know for me to do a study with a functional MRI machine it takes hundreds of thousands of dollars um, of grants of research and there's no one in Australia that can get that money in my field Um, the Australian government doesn't give that money Um, my colleagues so, a great professor from South Australia, Professor Dan King, and Professor Wayne Warburton, who I work with, have both applied for multiple grants in the last seven or eight years and gotten nothing. Yeah. And so, if you compare that to people trying to do, you know, health research versus the gaming industry or the social media industry and the amount of money they have to put into functional MRI scans, they are decades ahead of us. Yeah. And that's that's what I said is that you know as much as we feel like we're catching up, they. It's just a bit of an unfair fight, unfortunately. Yeah. Well,
0: for all those philanthropists listening, there's some good <laughs> yeah. good direction of funding. Yeah, for are passionate about this area, Yep, the um, links in the yeah. show notes. Reach out. <laughs> um, so, when when a family um, say a family come into to the clinic and get in contact and say, you know, my child's just, I'm really struggling that they're having that behavioural challenges, the emotional regulation. You know, we've all so many of us have seen the video of the parent getting fed up and chucking the Xbox in the pool or riding over it in a lawnmower. We've yeah. seen those things, but it's not always going to have an outcome. What's your what what's your approach from when that family coming into the clinic?
1: Um, I mean, so from the start here, the, the, the first and most important thing comes back to what we talked about a couple of questions ago, which is. If we go down that path of, you know, this is not the way it should be and yeah. my day wouldn't have it, you know, yeah. kids will shut down yeah. immediately, right? So to be honest, um, my approach starts with talking to kids about what they play and what they do online. yeah I want to understand what they do and why they do it. Um, and that means that I do come across as, pretty heavy on the positives of it. Oh, that's great. This game looks so entertaining. It's wonderful. You know, you're playing with a mate. That's fantastic. You know, really what I'm doing is I'm trying to understand the why, Mm. why they're playing um, and and what's getting in the way there. But from there, I'm also trying to educate the parents around the more you are negative about games, the more they will shut down about this. Mm. We have to start telling them and and sending across a message of some use is okay, but it has to be in moderation, right? Like anything. Um, so I try to get the parents, if they haven't already, to shift to that. Sometimes one parent has and the other one hasn't, or sometimes they both haven't. Mm. But the longer they stay in that, this, this is not the way it should be. You know, in that that old school mentality, they're going to get nowhere. So um, because that's just not the reality of what their, their, their children believe. But from there, what I'm looking for is, is the impacts in five main areas of development. So you mentioned two of them. Behavioural development, so are they lashing out? You know, are they breaking stuff? Mm. Um, Are they getting physically violent, which happens, unfortunately, quite often. Um, And so that's behavioural development, emotional development, social development, education, um, and then uh, health. Health is not technically a developmental domain. What I'm talking about with that is sleep, um, exercise, outdoor play, Mm. all that sort of stuff, you know, hygiene, So essentially, if you look at any child or teenager um, and you're asking the question of, is screen use impacting them? I'm looking for, is it impacting any of those five areas? And quite often it will be multiple of those areas. If it's really bad, it will be all of those areas. Um, And so I think where that kind of segues into the outdoor play stuff is, what you quite often see is the more that a child games or spends time online or social media, the more that increases, the, the, the outdoor activities, the exercise, the fun, the adventurous yeah. play decreases. It's just one of those things. Yeah. Um, and so if you have parents that try to say, we're going to do zero screen stuff and we're not going to game at all and we are a non-gaming family, then it's just too much of a shock to the system. Yeah. Well, the idea being that you've got to slowly kind of level that out a bit while yeah. giving them some time online because there are legitimate social reasons to be online.
0: Yeah. And then sounds like you're like offering another why opposed to the solely gaming why. Okay. There's create the why to why you want to get outside. What is the main why you hear from children that you work with around why they're online? Because all my friends are. Yeah.
1: It's, it's, it's simple, right? And and on the flip side of that um, parents, the why from them of how we got into this situation is quite often um because they were bored right so they needed something to do right and so we, we've entered this generation of you know of of parents who feel and this comes back to again what i was talking about before where we feel this pressure from community from society from other parents from neighbors that we are supposed to be you know this never-ending juggling act of of entertaining our children um 100%. i i i <laughs> I'll never forget, I've, I've told some other people this, but I, I was um, actually up your way um, when we could leave. Uh, I think it was last January, February. We were up there for a friend's wedding. Um, we're on the Gold Coast staying at SeaWorld. Um, and it was just fantastic. And we went to SeaWorld my kids were just loving it. But I, I, you know, walked past multiple kids, but one that stuck in my head. He must have been probably three. And he was walking around SeaWorld um, with an iPad watching YouTube. Mm. And I, I I said to my wife, and she just she immediately she looks at me and she just says, stop it, stop it, stop yeah. it. I don't hear it. No, don't do it. You know, so I didn't I didn't go there. But I I I couldn't help it something to me for a couple of days. I, how do we get to the point where a child is at SeaWorld and they want to be on YouTube? Yeah. How happened? happen? Um so there's this idea that, you know, even between like rides or between amusements, apparently we've got to entertain that kid. Yeah. Um, There's this expectation that they can't be bored. So when it comes down to it, I think a lot of parents feel this pressure that that they can't have a bored kid. And what I typically say to families is boredom's fine. Yeah. It's boredom that is going to create them getting outside and doing other things. Right. And so parents quite often then get into this, oh, why don't you go to the park and do this? Or why don't you go fishing with your mate? Or why don't you go surfing, you know, with Billy and why don't you do this? And of course. The very nature is the kids are going to tell their parents to get stuff yeah, because that's what we do, right? But if you create enough white space and boredom, they will eventually do something else. So that's kind of what I, I work with parents around doing is, is slowly reducing the screen time. Again, not to zero because we're not in some, you know, apocalyptic world where the internet's not going to matter in future, but enough white space and enough boredom yeah so that they just will find whatever else it is that they want
0: to do. Yeah. And it's not about, this conversation is not about demonizing screens at all. They are so practical for me as the way I learn, I can go down a rabbit hole, get into some crazy random research papers within um, all different (laughs) parenting and play and um, all different sorts. And that's just the way I learn. It keeps me intrigued. It keeps me balanced. And, when I want to find out something, it's there. And I think so many of us can relate to that.
1: Yeah, I mean, there, there is certainly, um, you know, many people in my field um, talk more about the healthy versus unhealthy screen. Yeah. Um, you yes, you know, is there a difference between your child watching a science clip on YouTube during lockdown so they can run a science experiment mm. from home versus gaming or on social media or watching YouTube uh, mindlessly? Yeah, of course there is an absolute difference in that, right? The problem is that children and teenagers and even young adults, you would argue, get stuck down the unhealthy rabbit hole. And they're just not great um, because of their brain development at, at, you know, keeping on path. So, you know, and, and that is the same for parents. Like, I certainly have to limit my own social media apps. So I have a limit of 20 minutes a day on screen time. And I found that I kept breaking that. Um, and so now my wife has the password, um, which my mates all laugh at me and still tease me about. But that is 100% legitimate. Like I did an Instagram live um, with Maggie Den,
0: yeah,
1: a week or two ago, and um, my wife had to come down and put in the password because I'd, I'd run out of my 20 minutes. So I was like, oh my god, I'm, <laughs> this whole thing is going to go down. So, I, you know, that's just my way of saying, even for adults, it's very difficult for us to all stay on the path of. The healthy use, you know, maybe some news or reading an article yeah. or keeping up with friends. We do fall into that unhealthy use as well.
0: Hundred uh, um, percent. Some a technique that I've used that's been super helpful was my wife is super diligent with her screen time. I'm like, you're a ninja, you're okay. a ninja of screen time. Amazing. All I did was like, this is where my screen time rating's at. Yeah. Um, I want you to I want to show you my screen time at the end of the week, yep is a breakdown, and that yeah. alone, that accountability for not are yeah. you like, oh no, I'm doing that thing don't yeah. go, don't do that, don't do that so um, that's one technique I use yeah in our growing up stage, it was kind of like TV was a thing to relax, yep, you know that social thing you gather around it's a bit of a chill. Um, children now do they use tv as a relax or is that a taught thing that tv is a tool like they know that they can go to a tv switch off and engage or it's completely different
1: um so i think that if you're talking specifically about tv i think that the way the technology has gone and because we have so many more screens in the house it used to be something that was more relaxing certainly when i was growing up as well because the whole family would be around one TV, mm. typically. If you had more than one TV, then um, you were doing pretty well. So, gosh, see, I'm, I'm, I'm back into the old school. Geez, back in my day. But anyway, I didn't want to go there. But, <laughs> you know, it was like the whole family was around, right? So you'd find a show that the whole family wants to watch. And there was a social element to it yeah. because, you know, you're chatting with mum, you're hearing mum chat with dad, you know, your brother's throwing something in your head and trying to push into the fire or something. So there was other stuff happening there, whereas... What's happening now we see in families is is just sort of everyone in isolation watching their own um, stuff. So, again, it can be easy for parents to say, well, he's just switching off, he's relaxing, he's watching what he wants. But there's a world of difference between doing that for half an hour in your room and then that turning into six hours of YouTube in your room. And I think it's really difficult for parents because – it's just so readily available. You know, I talked about um, 67% of primary school kids having a device, their own device. So if you're all sitting there watching TV and going, this is family movie night and we've got the popcorn out, um, it's so easy for a child just to have a meltdown or just walk away and go in their own room and and play their device. And then you've got a parent that kind of goes, oh, do I really want this argument? Am I going to battle him over this? So I, I think it's hard to know what's relaxation and what's just... Kids these days switching off, mm. um, and again, we should probably preface this by saying I do see a skewed version of the population, yeah. right? So I see the ten percent that have problematic use, and, yeah. and, and statistics in Australia it is around ten percent Australian kids. Which, by the way, if you look at how many Australian kids there are, you're talking about four or five hundred thousand kids in Australia, right? So, um, but. I see the 10%. And and so I'm not talking about the 90% mm. um, at home. Typically they, with parents being you know quite vigilant, you can keep on top of that. Um, but I think it's really difficult for parents because in that 10%, what we see is quite often kids will use it to um, avoid um, certain emotions. Yeah. Um, if you've had a fight with a mate or your mum's just argued with you over doing your math homework, it's very easy for you to just go to your room and, and watch that. And it becomes more of an emotional coping strategy rather than um, actually a relaxation strategy, yeah. as you were talking about it you know, back in the day.
0: Yeah, that's so, so interesting. And like that 10% and when you put that into context of 500,000 children struggling with this, um, you mentioned earlier the impact on the brain. I know from a play standpoint and learning as a child, we need to have sensory learning and we need to absorb through our senses, through exploration and sensory feedback socially and physically. Um, And that activates those switches of learning play. So what's the difference between play internally, um, what's happening internally from a play standpoint when it's converted to a screen opposed to outside?
1: Um, I think this is one of those issues where we haven't been able to drill down that far.
0: Mm. Um,
1: Because at the end of the day, you know, I mentioned earlier that we don't have enough research dollars to figure all this stuff out. So what we are figuring out at the moment in the research community, um, if I put my sort of research hat on for a minute here, by the way, I'm a terrible researcher. I normally joke that I'm sort of 10% researcher and 90% um, clinician. But anyway, I, I think what you'll find is that we focus our research on the more broader questions yes, and not being able to nail down some of those more nuanced questions because we just don't have the funding, right? right? Um, so there are some studies that have been able to figure out some more nuanced questions than that I use to, to sort of drive my practice. So for example, uh, in 2013, there was a Scandinavian study um, that looked at online gaming versus offline gaming and they did functional MRI studies. And essentially what they found is that the amount of dopamine going to the brain with online gaming is a lot more than offline gaming, which is fundamentally the reason why, you know, playing a PlayStation or a a Sega Mega Drive in the 80s or 90s had a tiny bit of dopamine to the brain versus the current gaming and social media platforms have way more. And the reason for that is that the social connection, because it doesn't matter whether you're playing your best mate from school or, or the guy from next door or, or someone from you know the other side of the world. Yeah. You still get a massive amount of dopamine to the brain. So I guess what that tells us is that the internet connection is a huge part of it.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, and and because it it brings a social aspect in. So when you look at all of the nuanced questions coming back to your question around. You know, at age three, at age five, at age eight, at age 12, at age 18, there's just so many different questions on brain development, how it may or may not be impacting, um, that we, we have struggled yeah. um, to do that. So even in the younger years, I don't believe there are enough of those studies. I think the focus has been on teenagers. Yeah. The reason the focus has been on teenagers is because that's typically the age um, when, Things really kick off, and by kick off, I mean that's when you get kids that have not gone to school for a year or two, um, that are you know police are being called because of parents trying to take a phone um, from a child. Like it, it gets pretty pointy in those teenage years, um, and and essentially what we what we do know. So again, to, to to go down the path of some of the brain science stuff that we do know. Um, In the teenage years, there was a big longitudinal study in 2019 um, by Paulus et al. So, an American study. uh, From memory, I think it was 11,000 kids over four years. So really robust study. And they did functional MRIs. What they found is that kids that had somewhere around four or five hours of recreational screen use a day, now just to be clear, that isn't four or five hours of gaming, that isn't four or five hours of social media, it isn't four or five hours of Netflix all of it, it's recreational screen use. Mm -hmm. This is where parents get confused as well. So kids that had four to five hours, we would see that they would start to have impacts in those developmental domains I was talking about before. Not all of them. Some kids can have five hours and still be sweet. Others have three hours and it all melts down. It's different um, depending on different kids. what it also found is when you go over seven hours of screen use, then you are talking about they could actually measure your brain cortex thinning prematurely, okay? So I'm not a neuropsychologist. It's really, it gets really, really tricky here, but it's not a good thing, right? And essentially we don't know if that's reversible or not because that longitudinal study only came out two years ago. It's gonna take us another 10 years to figure out whether that's reversible or not. Yeah. but you're talking about seven hours, and everyone goes, "Oh, well, okay, you know, seven hours is a crazy amount of time. My kids don't have it." If you look at some of the Australian data, they do. Teenagers in every in every household were getting six and a half hours of recreational screen use before COVID.
0: Yeah,
1: right. I'm ha- I'm hasn't a guess here that a big chunk of them after COVID are getting more than six and a half hours. So we are as a country at that point where many. and i'm not going to put a percentage or a figure out about many of our kids are getting that seven hours that is thinning their brain cortex
0: so what's the impact of the thinning of the brain cortex what does that do
1: so i mean again it gets pretty minute here and we would just sort of be guessing yeah um i i guess you know it has all sorts of implications on areas like the prefrontal cortex and the amygdala and and basically um So
0: emotional regulation and um, decision-making
1: impulse impulse control um, and all these sorts of things. Right. And we know that for teenagers, that doesn't fully develop, especially for boys until they're kind of well in their thirties. Yeah. We used to think it was like 21, (laughs) you know, and it explains why stupid Brad crashed his car at 21.
0: Yeah. um, I have said that to so many educators about the brain development and the, um, ladies and young ladies in the crowd goes oh that makes so much more sense for my partner yeah. now <laughs> yeah, yeah that's right yeah that's it but i i mean i am not saying that that
1: all men at age you know 25 or 30 or whatnot are going to be like that um but i guess it, it, it's important to give parents some context here because yeah. so often you hear parents say oh well, how, you know they're really struggling with emotion regulation and and their impulses can you can you teach them that uh, you know, my my standard response is, um, I, I mean, I'm, I can't speed up brain development, yeah. I, I can, I can do some stuff to try and help. Yeah, but I don't want to oversell it. I can't yeah. speed up brain development, right? So, um, and so the teenage years is the most tricky um, point for that. And, and I guess that's when we see a lot of these issues cropping up as well.
0: Yeah, and so important, like from that emotional intelligence standpoint, that emotional development, the identity of self at those at that age and that yep. disconnect from what I observe, like this identity you have in line online, and then you transferred out into the you know, sounding old real world. Yeah. Um, and then there's such a disconnect. They just can't cope. That's my own very limited observation. And then that, the social interaction, the reality, the instant gratification of those dopamine responses that are just accessible. It's just like, I need a bit of a hit, boom, boom, boom. And then dealing with the crashes afterwards.
1: Yeah, and so, you know, what you're getting into now, Lucas, is more about the, um, the pointy end. So yeah. the kids would qualify for what we call internet gaming disorder or gaming disorder, which yeah. we know in Australia is more like 1% to 3%, depending on what study you look at, An Australian study. Um, And again, there's some of the research that we've actually done well because they don't require brain scans and funding and whatnot. Um, And and, and so, but again, you look at 1% to 3% and you're still talking about like 50,000 kids, right? So this is huge. Mm. And and there's not really many places um, that parents can turn to for help in this if you're one of the 1 to 3% and you need treatment quote unquote where do you go right yeah. um there are private clinics like myself but um you know I do the best I can basically with um, some medicare rebates or something like yeah. that but at the end of the day as a country we're so far behind in helping those kids yeah. if you look at somewhere like Singapore I spoke at a conference uh, back in may and one of the other speakers was the director of a addiction clinic in singapore you know and he uh, melvin was a great guy and, and he um, he was chatting about you know all the services they have there and if you've got a child with with addiction or, or with internet gaming stuff you know we'll get someone to come out to you and if, if that's a problem we can admit you and we've got you know, we've got a hospital here and all these fantastic services yeah. and he was asking the australian audience oh you know it was mostly doctors and academics but I'm sure you've got similar things like that in Australia. No.
0: And spin effects have- rolls through. Everyone's like awkward. Yeah.
1: Oh. You don't have any of that. So yeah. I think then those kids that, that get stuck in that, you know, creating a sense of self online and the instant gratification and then not yeah. wanting to get out to school or wherever it may be, mm. it may be 1% to 3%, but you've still got to remember um, that's a big chunk of Australian kids.
0: Yeah. And also just even if they're not, well, I'm, um, obviously not academic, but the not symptomatic. is <laughs> mm. like you're not showing the symptoms of this, but yeah. we're, we haven't even seen, we're not seeing the implications of um, the book I'm reading at the moment, The Road Less Travelled, the psychology okay. book. And he put it in a really interesting frame where he describes a development of the map that you work from to view the world. Mm. And if that map's being created through social interaction online, Like, what map are you taking out into your adult life that we're only going to go see until those adult years? Yeah, I think that comes back to,
1: you know, the question of how much social interaction needs to be done online versus Mm. offline. And I'm not going to sort of give you a percentage or anything like that. It's different for every child. But the key part here is, you you know, a child or a teenager shouldn't be getting 100% of their social interaction online. Yeah. So, you know, the classic question that I give to parents uh, when they ask me that, if you've got a teenager, I say, well, let's talk about the job interview test. At the moment, does your young man or young lady have enough social skills to sit through a job interview? And can they actually do that, um, you know, appropriately? Pick up all the social cues, sit there, know how to do all that stuff. And that's just, again, an old school question for parents. But fundamentally, what we're saying here is, I'm okay with them getting some social needs met online. That's the way of the world. That's the yeah. way it's going to move. That's fine. But it shouldn't be 100%. And it shouldn't even be anywhere close to that either, by the way, right? Like yeah. I'm not even talking at 90%. But you, for parents, they've got to find what works for them as parents and what they believe in um, and what balance that is. Some parents say 50-50 or something like that. Yeah. So if you, it comes back to other activities. If you have a child that's limited to, say, two hours of recreational use in an evening and they're bored for two or three hours, <clears throat> that opens up more space for them to go out and play or join a footy team or rejoin that netball team or whatever it may be. Yeah. You know, it doesn't even need to be um, anything too arduous, just, just normal sports, yeah. which you'll find a lot of kids have dropped out of um, as well in this yeah. situation.
0: The recreational sports numbers are dropping dramatically. They're plummeting through the floor. Absolutely. For for a family like yours, young children, um, what's a, what's your recommended approach with screen time for young, like early primary school, kindy age?
1: Um. I mean, so essentially, what most of the guidelines will tell you. So, the Pediatric Association of America has some mm-hmm. pretty good guidelines on this, and um, you know, basically, the guidelines are around under one or two years old, you should be getting nothing. Yeah. Um, and from two to five, they talk about sort of one to two hours, and then moving on, it kind of goes to two or three hours, depending on their age and all the rest of it. Yeah. Um, so I, I loosely follow that stuff.
0: Daily, that's daily. Yeah. yeah. Um,
1: but I guess um, in saying that, you know, I think we should just quantify that during things like lockdowns, um, I don't want to guilt parents into feeling like they have to be perfect yeah. at this um, because I feel like the toll for parents even on mental health can be quite high. Um, and I don't want them to chase some unattainable goal. And I think we also need to be flexible about that. So yeah. what I mean by that is, you know, in that holiday that I mentioned before, when we drove back from Queensland, it was like an eight-hour drive or something yeah. an Absolute nightmare. Um, and, you know, I will happily hand on heart say my kids had more than two hours of screen time that day. Yeah. Um, you know, there are certain situations where you're going for long trips like that, or if your kids are sick. Yeah. Um, one of my little ones was sick recently and she she was proper sick. She had a really high fever and all the rest of it. And so she had more than two or three hours. Yeah. Um she didn't have 10. Yeah. But I think that you know, parents need to be honest with themselves because quite often they just don't keep track because they yeah. don't want to know. Um and but they also need to be a little bit flexible around it. So there are these guidelines. Um, but at the same time, I understand that stuff hits the fan in the family. Um, then you can be flexible around it. That should be the exception and not the rule, right? Yeah. Um, so if there's a world of difference between going on a long road trip and using more screen time to get you through that versus you know, having iPads in the car so that every time you go to swimming or every time you go to the grandparents' house, you duck them out for 20 minutes. Yeah, That to me is just a point where I think we're probably going a little bit too far.
0: Yeah and what are some of the things that parents can do like we move up into those teen years and we're talking about phones and um well the scary for me is that amount of children taking phones into the room for bedtime yeah. and staying up all through the night what's your recommendations there for parents to apply
1: Yes. I mean, I, I go through this in detail, um, in my book and yep. I've got videos online and stuff. Um, so there's seven steps, um, basically, uh, around this stuff, but if I can just give you like a, a pretty brief overview and if anyone else wants a deeper look, they can look into it. hundred
0: percent and we'll, and all the links are in the, show, will be in the show notes. So, um, after you finish listening today, scroll down all the links in the show notes. I've gone through them all. Some great, great videos there. Um, for all all families, not just teenagers, yeah so
1: I, I guess then what we're talking about for the teenage years and what I found in my work and in my research is that you know this mentality which some other people prescribe that you know you just need to be a parent, just man up, just take the phone, just take the device. yeah it just um it just doesn't work, so it might work for sixty or seventy percent of kids that are super compliant that you know want to do the right thing you know and even in my family right i have a sneaking suspicion if i had a little crystal ball it's probably going to work for my daughter yeah Um, it is not going to work for my son um you know who i think we were just talking about before we started here just you know barreled through a baby gate and runs around the house swinging a cricket bat and all the rest of it so different kids um are going to be different here and if you just you know in my experience Typically for families that have, say, three kids, for example, there's going to be one that's going to really test the boundaries with this stuff and not just going to leave their phone on the kitchen bench and not take it into their room or whatnot. So for families in that situation, if you have one child that that is not willing to be compliant and follow those rules in the teenage years, then you have a problem for the whole family, right? Because as soon as you have one child that is not willing to follow those rules, um, you have to implement rules for the whole family. Uh, otherwise, they're just going to take their sister's or brother's devices um, when you're not looking. So the idea of just take the devices, you know, don't let your kids have them in the room and everything, it's just so simplistic. Mm. Uh, there's not the actual, you know, meat and potatoes of how do families actually do that. And that's what I take parents through of how to actually do that in a practical sense. And one of the biggest ways that i found is helpful uh, is by managing the Wi-Fi, mm. Um, And so what I mean by that is, you know, I referenced that study earlier about how, you know, any game or social media with Wi-Fi is much more powerful dopamine hit than without. So basically what I'm saying to parents is, you know, kids were not going to offline game. Most kids will not offline game. 99% of kids will not. They might do it for an hour. They're going to get bored. They get bored because there's less dopamine to the brain. So if you manage the Wi-Fi and the mobile data you're, you, you're halfway there to managing this. So some of the practical things here are families turning the Wi-Fi and the data and stuff off at night because you can have a rule and you should have a rule that there are no screens in your bedroom for teenagers. Yeah. And that's a good rule to follow. But for parents, when you're tired and when you're you know stressed going in, what are you going to do? Like three times a night, roll in there like a ninja and try and check if they're on their phone. I mean, it, some parents do that, right? And it's exhausting. Yeah. So essentially, there are layers of security um, that you have to think about. And if they have no Wi-Fi access and very limited mobile data, then you're halfway there because even if they manage to commando crawl out to the kitchen and grab you know, their phone and then sneak it back before you wake up, there's no Wi-Fi. Yeah. So it's doing offline stuff. Um, so it, there's a multitude of strategies that we would use, but the biggest one is managing the Wi-Fi and limiting the phone data. Yeah. Which yeah. is really difficult. Um, typically I say between two and five gigabytes. Now, the reason I the reason I don't say zero data is because I do think that kids should be able to communicate with their friends. Yeah. I, I don't mind them messaging or, you know, Instagram messaging if they're using it correctly. And you know that that's how they communicate. That's how they organize play dates or meet up for the beach or go to the movies. Yeah. But we shouldn't have so much data that it means that they can stay up all night and game or watch YouTube and just get in the endless loop, okay? So kids will burn through two to five gigabytes of data pretty quick.
0: And then you mentioned earlier, so it really stood out in my brain because um, a bit of context, the technique we use in our house, I've got a um, five and seven-year-old and we do tokens. So you get three tokens a week it's two for a movie. There's nothing, no TV during the week, but you get two tokens for a movie credit and one token for a show. And once you're out, you're out. My my son's probably a bit similar to yours. He's like, take my money and he'll (laughs) blow them straight away. And my daughter's a bit strategic with it. Um, But then once they run out, my son, he'll still be saying, Oh, can I watch something? Can I watch something? And I'm just constant, no. And this isn't a kid that's had, like, a lot of exposure to screen at all. Um, we're very blessed with our outdoor play areas, our bushland at the back. But the amount of times, can I watch something? Can I watch something? What's yeah. some techniques um, parents can use? Specifically me and my wife. <laughs> and I know other people are going through it as well. But um, because what stands out is not just say no. Not I don't want to demonise TV or screen time. They don't do phones. They don't do that at that age. So, any tips are welcome.
1: <laughs> I, I mean, I think um, so. Token economy systems for younger kids tend to work. You're obviously going to get kids that um, still ask, yeah, and, and try to get what we call high attention, high emotion. They try to ramp up uh, the energy in the rooms to hope that mum or dad snap and just go whatever. Yeah, um, that's not some Machiavellian plan because your son's an evil bloke or anything. It's just what kids do. Yeah. Um, so. Certainly, uh, you know, try not to engage too much in the debate around it. I I, I find that it just sort of leads nowhere. You know, you can reiterate to him, look, mate, I'm sorry, you used your token, start again tomorrow. Um, But you've got to keep it fairly short with that. But that sort of system, a token economy system, where you then go on and turn the TV on for them or give them access or whatever it may be, there is a point where that stops working. Yeah. And it's typically around older um, primary school or early high school. And there is a transition period that in my research, I'm very much honing in on now around that, you know, a child going from year six to year seven is a real risk period that we've identified for screens um, because they seem to get access to personal devices. You know, they need one for school um, and, and access becomes greater. But what I'm saying is that will work for a child, you know, your kid's age, it's probably not going to work for a 14 and an 11 yeah. year old. Um, the token system will literally just be whatever, Dad, keep your token sticking yeah. right? Yeah. And then you're going to have him commando crawling and trying to break into different things and all the rest of it. Um, so, yeah, I, I think I, I quite often see families that had a system that worked when their kids were, you know, um, five and three or, or seven and five or something yeah. like that. And when they hit that age of anywhere between 10, 11, 12, some of that stuff starts to slip because that's normal, right? Yep. Um, as kids get closer to the adolescence, they, they're going to push the boundaries. Um, kids have been doing that for, for years or decades. And, and, and that, that's just coming through on screens as well, right? It's, it's the same as the 13-year-old kid where you say, you know, um, be home by five o'clock for dinner and they rock up at 5.20. You go, where were you? Ah, close enough, right? Yeah. That used to happen 30 years ago. Now, the version is I thought you were only supposed to watch one show. What happened that was an hour ago. oh, I don't know close so yeah i I think you've got some pretty good strategies that work right now, um and you would have to have a think about uh what to do when they get older.
0: yeah, I think my daughter's seven going on fifteen, so I think I would act pretty quickly <laughs> yeah. um what are some of the unknown um invisible side effects that uh parents might not know about that are impacting their children with their screen time?
1: I mean, I think we've gone through some of the brain development stuff that parents obviously don't um, commonly know. Um, And excuse me. um, You know, I I think that if a parent is looking at all of those five developmental domains, they are then able to reflect on what screens might be impacting that they didn't quite realize. Yeah. So You know, it would be fairly common that a parent hasn't put two and two together with some of the more subtle ones, Um, you know, even the impact on social development. So parents may go, oh, no, it's okay. You know, they're they're playing with their friends online and they've still got good mates and they're going to school and stuff. But if your child is staying up late to game or or on social media, and then they get tired because they're not getting 10, 11 hours sleep that they're supposed to get, Yeah. Um, and then they're a bit stroppy at school the next morning and that can start to wreak havoc a little bit over time, not immediately with social relationships. You know, they're in the playground at recess, they're tired, they get short with their mate, they have an argument. I think quite often, mm. um, there are some of these more subtle ones that parents wouldn't come into my clinic and say, oh, screens are really impacting on, on, on him having fights with friends. Yeah, They don't see the dominoes falling and how they do in that manner. Um, and the other little impacts, like educationally, because it would slip over time. Again, yeah. if you have a child that hasn't slept or is having a social fallout, he then comes back from recess, he's just had a fight with his mate and he's tired, he's not taken in as much yeah. as he normally would at school. But that's not going to show up educationally, uh, especially in primary school for, for, I don't know, 12, 18 months typically. Yeah. You know, you might get a report and kind of go, oh, okay, it wasn't a great one. It's not until the second or third report that parents go, oh, wow, hang on, what's going on here? Yeah. So I think some of the invisible side effects there are, are ones like that where, where they're not, it's not until you're completely, you know, pretty far down the rabbit hole yep. that, or someone like myself points it out that, that parents kind of go, okay, hang on, this was doing a lot more than I thought.
0: Yeah. And um, what's happening in the sector of, supporting children with internet addiction that you're most excited about and the work that's happening out there at the moment
1: again i'm I'm not trying to be the pessimistic guy here but not much (laughs) and that's
0: no i love the honesty it's good someone
1: who dedicates their life to Mm. this my life my career everything is about this trying to help kids and even i am sitting here saying what i'm doing is not enough yeah it's not even close um and it's not just me i have many great colleagues You know, Dr. Kim Lee is a child psychiatrist in Adelaide who's just fantastic. Dr. Philip Tam. So there are enough of us in Australia, but there's not enough um, support politically um, and and from schools. I I suppose if I had to really pick one thing, in the last five years, there has been a recognition from schools that we shouldn't just focus on cyber safety. While that is really important, um, that we need to. Really focus on overuse and and addiction or disorder, or whatever you want to call it, as well. So, I am seeing a lot more schools coming on board and trying to offer their parents parent education sessions and all the rest of it. But it still does take a second, you know, back seat um, to this. And it's amazing, you know, in the last couple of years, I I speak at a lot of um, principals' conference, a lot of primary school principals' conference. And the feedback that I get, not because I'm some like amazing speaker or something, just because they, they honestly, these principals and their staff are crying out for help with this. Yeah. They ha, they see, you know, the amount of principals that I see that say to me, this is the number one reason for why kids do not attend school. It used to be drugs and alcohol or truanting or like, it used yeah. to be all these other reasons in the 80s and 90s, right? Gaming and social media and phones is the number one reason why these principals see that kids will drop out or not go to school. So, yeah. How that is not causing more waves in a political sense, in a public health message sense, um, I don't know. Clearly, we're not doing enough. We're not uh, making enough waves. And, and maybe myself and my colleagues are not speaking up enough. Um, traditionally, child psychology and child psychiatry are a very conservative uh, sort of profession. We wouldn't, we wouldn't do podcasts. We wouldn't yeah. do interviews. I think the first interview I did was probably 2015. I ran the clinic for five years and and knocked back every single interview I was ever asked for. Yeah, Um, Just because it's not the done thing in our profession, but we are slowly starting to understand that we probably need to speak up more um, because without us raising awareness about it, nothing's going to change.
0: Yeah. And there's an urgency to it. Like, you know, childhood gets by pretty quickly in those influential years. It's not going to take much. And then like you said the data's not there to know the long-term impacts and you know me as a father I'm like what's my what's the community going to look like for my children
1: yeah I mean I think plenty of generations and our parents probably thought the same thing right Uh, the invent of a lot of things so I I don't freak out as much about that I I I I certainly see the technology is going that way and there's nothing that's going to change that right but um you know when you get into the nitty gritty of like you know brain cortex thinning and all yeah. these sorts of things that's the stuff that people like social media companies and the gaming industry you can't spin that
0: mm. you
1: can't argue with that it's there in black and white and that's why i keep harping on about the brain imaging studies the functional mri studies they are the ones that are irrefutable um, yep. even though the industry will still try to spin it in some different yep. way or come up with other studies but um, at the end of the day, those are the things that need to drive us for a healthy amount of use for kids. Again, I'm not like, you know, some people quite often say to me, oh, you know, so you must like live on a farm somewhere and you don't know, give your kids screens at all and you don't. I mean, no, that's not the case. Yeah. Like, it's out of screens. It's okay. You know, we were playing Mario Kart a couple of days ago uh, on Nintendo Wii with my daughter. Um, she didn't like it that much. But anyway, I enjoyed it. But, you know, so it's not something where I'm like, off on some commune and, and, and live it off grid, you know, yeah. and I pop up every now and then to talk about this. Um, we can do it. We just have to do it in a healthy way. That's not going to impact them. That's all I'm saying.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's not going away. No, not going yeah. anywhere. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for your time today. Um, I just appreciate the conversation so much. I appreciate the work you do so much and the challenge you come up against. It's something. As a sector we don't I haven't considered until delving into your work and what you do, but there is a lot you personally are up against, so I appreciate your resilience and making it a mission for your life and helping so many children like you know help one like you said one percent yeah, one percent's too much yeah it's
1: pretty scary, isn't it? but look, I, I really appreciate your questions, and thank you for taking the time to look into it
0: no problem. Look forward to having you back again because we didn't even get into talking about like schools and all of that and technology at schools, but um, look forward to you joining us again soon.
1: Absolutely, absolutely.
0: Thank you for joining us on another Play It Forward worthy podcast. What an insightful person with a phenomenal mission, amazing Brad Marshall. Check him out at the Internet Addiction Clinic at Kids Space Thank you for joining us on another platform worthy podcast.